If you have your copy of God's Word, I'll invite you to take that and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, where we're going to be studying verses 4 to 8. John, chapter 1, verses 4 to 8 is what we're going to focus on this morning, but to remind us of the context, we're going to start our reading in verse 1. So if you would, please follow along with me. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now that you would give us ears of faith to hear your word as we ought, to respond as we ought, Father, with faith and obedience. Father, I pray that you would please keep me from error, that you would grant your church the discernment she needs to hold fast to the truth and thus be conformed to the image of Christ. We thank you, God, that your word is true, inspired, without error, and able to give life. We pray, Father, for life today in our hearts And in the hearts of those among us, Father, who may not yet believe. We pray these things for the glory of Christ and in his name. Amen. One of the things you'll learn about my family is that we love a good story. And there's perhaps no story that we love more than J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. I hope somebody likes that story with us. I'm sure some of you have either read the book or you've seen the movie, but if not, it's, it's a wonderful story of good versus evil. This is part of the reason why my family likes the story so much. We love the tension of those two sides locked in the titanic struggle for supremacy. In fact, our favorite scenes are the ones, are those battles where it looks like there's no chance that the good guys are going to win. That drama is exhilarating, and no matter how many times we've watched it or read it, I'm reading the book right now, no matter how many times we've watched or read, that drama always pulls us in. Will good triumph over evil? Will light dispel the darkness once and for all? We love those stories. You know, some people see a number of Christian parallels in Tolkien's story. And there are certainly some allusions to the gospel truth in Tolkien's world, but there's one way in which Tolkien's story differs entirely from the biblical narrative. There's one way that they are not alike at all. And it has to do with that idea of good versus evil. In Tolkien's world, the outcome is very much in doubt. It is truly good versus evil, and it's a real question. Who will win? But friends, the biblical narrative is different than that. In the Bible, 
we do not have a battle of good versus evil. As though they were two equal forces locked in struggle for supremacy. That's actually not the biblical worldview at all. To be sure, the Bible affirms that there is evil in this world. There is darkness that defies God. Satan and his minions are real. Let's be clear on that. And yet, Satan is not equal with God. Evil is not the balancing force to good. Darkness actually cannot stand up to the light. You see, that's actually the difference between our drama-filled stories like the Lord of the Rings and the Gospel. In the Gospel, it's not good versus evil, but always good over evil. In the Gospel, light always triumphs over darkness without fail. And that reality is what we see in our passage this morning in John chapter 1. You probably picked up on this as we read right away. John introduces us to this imagery of light and darkness. John loves vivid imagery. And that pair of light and darkness is one of his favorites. Over 15 times in the Gospel of John, he references light. And over 10 times, he describes night or darkness. In fact, at the low point of the Gospel, when Judas goes out to betray Jesus... John writes that Judas went out and it was night. He loves this pair of light and darkness. These are important concepts for John. But here's the central point, the point that really gets to the heart of our passage. The outcome is not in doubt. John does not see the world as a dualistic realm where things hang in the balance. In fact, John eliminates all the drama right from the start in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In a way, that's, that's the gospel in one sentence. Light and darkness are not equally powerful forces locked in struggle. Rather, the battle is already won. Light triumphs over darkness, even when it may appear that the darkness is winning. How can this be true? Why can John so confidently write in verse 5 that the darkness has not overcome the light? How can he write that? Well, that's where we want to spend the remainder of our time this morning. I want us to see that John's confident statement of victory is not wishful thinking. And neither is he papering over the reality of evil. John understands the human condition. John is clear on the darkness of this world. But at the same time, John is also clear on who Christ is. The eternal son who possesses life in himself and whose coming is the beginning of a new creation. That's the key to this, to this text. The darkness of this world is real. But that darkness is no match for the life-giving light found in Jesus Christ who is the son of God. So in terms of an outline, I have a pretty simple plan for this morning. The longer we, we go on together, the more you will find out, this guy's a pretty simple preacher. I can just see that in the Bible myself. Yes, that's what I want you to see. So pretty simple outline this morning, just two points. I want to focus on two truths. 
The first has to do with what Christ accomplishes. That's verses 4 and 5. And the second has to do with how we ought to respond. That's verses 6 to 8. So simple outline, just two points. But I pray that the truth of this text will encourage our hearts in the gospel. Let's begin then in verses 4 and 5 with truth number 1, the certainty of Christ's triumph. The certainty of Christ's triumph. You may remember where we ended last week in verse 3, how the eternal word who was with God and who is God made all things. As verse 3 said so clearly, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. That's where we ended last week. Now verse 4 picks up on that and continues to flesh out the same truth. Listen again, verse 4. In him, that is the word, in him was life and the life was the light of of men. Friends, verse 4 could be summarized in two words, creating and sustaining. Creating and sustaining. The life that God poured into the creation flows from the Son, who is life in himself, and the life that now continues in creation is sustained by the Son, who is life in himself. You see, verse 4 is expanding on verse 3, everything that exists has its life because of the Son of God, creating and sustaining. Now, I know we thought about this a little bit last week, but I want us to think about it again. One of my foundational convictions as a pastor is that the pathway to deeper worship runs through your mind before it gets to your heart. So we don't simply need more emotions in response to Jesus. We need to see and understand and meditate upon truth in response to Jesus. That's how you get your heart engaged is through the truth soaking into your mind. So I know we thought about this last week, but for the sake of worship, I want to think about it again. I want to think about this staggering truth in verse 4. Life according to John, is not merely the result of organic processes between cells that cause organisms to function and work. That is far too reductionistic to think about God's world. Life, according to John, is in the Son of God. It's in the Son. Now, I know there's a massive claim in that little preposition, in. So here's my best attempt to get my feeble mind around what that preposition means means. This is how I think of it. If Christ were to say stop, then everything would cease to exist, for life is found in him. In other words, the universe is not a mechanism that just runs on its own. It's not an engine that God kicked off and then he just lets it do whatever he wants. The universe runs on the life that is found in the Son who created and sustains all things. The one who holds all things together in himself. Friends, go outside tomorrow and spend three minutes looking at the sunrise or breathing in the cool morning air. And as you do, think about this truth that life is in the Son. Before your day starts and, and something takes you in 10,000 different directions with all the things you have to do, go outside, think about verse 4, and what will happen in your heart is worship. In him was life. It's incredible. It's astonishing. And it should lead us to worship. At the same time, it's important that we understand 
John is not referring solely to physical life in verse 4. This is another example of how John's simple language often has surprising depth. He's not talking just about physical life. If you were to read through John's gospel today or this week, that might be a good thing to do. If you were to read through John's gospel, you would notice repeated references to life. In our translation, it appears over 40 times. And in many of those instances, John is referring not to physical life, but to spiritual life. Think of one of the most well-known verses in John, John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not talking about physical life there. He's talking about spiritual life, eternal life, and how it's found only in him. So, when John says in verse 4, that life was in the word, he has in mind spiritual life as well. In fact, you can almost think of verse 4 as a hinge in this opening section of the book that takes us from the word's work in creation and then hinges over to the word's mission of salvation. Verse 4 is like a, it's like a hinge. Just as God created all things in the beginning through his word, so also the word has now come into the world to do what? To bring about a new creation where sinners are brought from death to life and reconciled to God. So John's thinking about spiritual life in verse 4 as well. How do we know this? Well, from the end of the verse, this is where we start to make the connection. Notice the last phrase in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Okay, here's another point where we need to think together. How is the son's life the light of men? What does that last phrase in verse 4 mean? There are a couple of options for how we could interpret it. One option sticks with the creation view from verse 3. In this view, the son's life is the animating principle of the human race. The son's life is what makes humanity unique. It's what gives us our rationality, our creativity, our spiritual capacities. This would be very similar to saying that human beings are made in the image of God. So that's one view, that the, the son's life was the light of men, means it's what makes humanity humanity. That's one view. However, I think that view misses the key point of the context, which is found in the next verse. Verses interpret verses. right? Passages interpret passages. So if you look to the next verse, John's going to tell you what it is. The, sun, the sun's life gives light, but where does that life-giving light shine? Verse 5, it shines where? In the darkness, John says. Friends, the darkness here is more than a reference to the physical creation. For John, the darkness is never the absence of light. For John, darkness is always the presence of evil. It's the realm of unbelief. This is the nature of the world. 1 John 5.19 The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Even more importantly, darkness is the condition of every human heart. John 3 19, the light has come into the darkness, but men, uh, light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. 
That's the darkness John has in view. That's where the light shines. By nature, every person is born into this world spiritually blind. We're in the dark when it comes to the truth. We can't see. And this spiritual blindness is because we are spiritually dead. Unable to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, which is the verse on the front of your bulletin today, just FYI. That's the darkness John has in view in verse 5. Now, make the connection with the end of verse 4. Remember, we're trying to figure out what the end of verse 4 says. Make the connection. When John says that the Son's life was the light of men, he's giving us the remedy to humanity's condition. Where do spiritually blind, spiritually dead people find life? Only in the light of the sun. Where is the light that dispels the darkness of sin and unbelief and gives life only in the sun? That's what John is saying. In him was life, and that life, that God-given divine life in the sun is the only source... Of salvation for sinners who are mired in darkness. John's going to unpack this over and over throughout the book. He wants you to see that life is found only in the sun. He's going to unpack this over and over and over. But it's important enough that we pause here for just a moment and, and think about it a little bit more. There is a very significant application right here for how we think about salvation, what it means to be saved. Let me explain what I mean. Spiritual life, or we could use John's preferred phrase, eternal life. Spiritual life is not simply an unending existence in heaven. That's not what eternal life means. That's far too small a view of spiritual life. Rather, eternal life is fellowship with the Father through the Son, sustained by the Spirit. Salvation, in other words, is union with Christ Himself, who is life. So just to state it plainly, heaven is glorious because it's the place where we fellowship with God. Heaven is glorious is because it's the place where we see the sun. Heaven is glorious is because it's the place where the Spirit's work of conforming us to the image of Christ is complete. Streets of gold and mansions are nothing compared to knowing God and fellowshipping with Him through His Son. Brothers and sisters, that's what it means to have spiritual, even eternal life. It means that we live in the Son. And in the sun, we leave the darkness of sin and we enter the light of fellowship with the living God. (laughs) Come, Lord Jesus. So verse 4, verse 4 certainly affirms the sun's role in creating and sustaining everything that you see. But even more than that, verse 4 affirms the Son's role in creating and sustaining spiritual life. The only remedy for humanity's dark condition is the life-giving light of the Son of God. Now there's a question here 
It's the question that we've been driving at throughout this whole point. If the darkness of this world is real, and it is, and if the darkness of the human heart is real, and it is, then what confidence is there that the light will prevail? That's great that you say the light of Christ dispels darkness, but the darkness appears very dark. So what hope is there that the light's actually going to win? What confidence can you give me? Look in verse 5. Here's the certainty. Here's the confidence. Listen again, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The term overcome has the sense of a hostile takeover, a seizure of power that is rooted in an inability to understand something. But friends, that's precisely what the darkness has not done, John says. The darkness has not overcome the life-giving light of the sun. This is the certainty, the confidence that begins John's gospel. The world will oppose Jesus. His own people will reject him. And still, the light of life shines and it drives out the darkness of those whom God has called to himself. The biblical gospel is not a cosmic struggle of good versus evil. It is always good over evil. Because the darkness cannot withstand withstand Jesus Christ. Perhaps this this confidence, this certainty is something that you haven't thought about in a while. Or perhaps it's something that you've lost sight of during the whatever this world has been for the last 18 months. Maybe to you it does seem like the darkness is winning. I know I've read a lot of things on the internet that tells me the darkness is winning. And so if so, if if maybe this, this certainty is something that you've lost sight of, I just want to take a couple of moments here to remind each of us how thorough, how certain, and how complete Christ's triumph is and will be. So I just want to take a minute here to meditate on verse 5, if that's okay with you. Verse 5 means that the darkness of sin will not overcome the gospel of Christ. Through his blood, Christ has paid for every sin of his people, and his atonement will not allow one accusation of the evil one to stand against the child of God. So if you're a believer, you know that sin that keeps you up in the middle of the night that you've confessed and received forgiveness of and still you can't seem to shake it. The blood of Christ says that the darkness of that sin will not prevail. What's more, the darkness of indwelling sin will not overcome Christ's gospel. By his grace, the life-giving light of Christ will continue his good work in the heart of every Christian so that day by day, month by month, year by year, we will look more like Jesus until the day we see him face to face. It's why we read Philippians chapter 2 earlier in the service because God will finish his good work. The darkness of sin will not overcome the light of Christ's gospel. Verse 5 also means that the darkness of human evil will not overcome the light of Christ's gospel. The world is full of wickedness. And at times, that wickedness appears senseless to us. 
It certainly adds suffering to the human condition in ways that are grievous and awful. And yet, there is a day coming when the, when the risen Christ will cast all evildoers into judgment. There's a day coming when every act of wickedness will receive its just retribution. There's a day coming when every untruth, every lie, every backstabbing moment will receive from God its recompense. How do we know that day is coming? Because the tomb is empty. That's how we know the day is coming. The worst act of wickedness in the history of this world, the rejection of God's Son, ended in triumph, victory. And therefore, we have this confidence that the darkness of human evil will not overcome the light of Christ's gospel. Verse 5 also means that the darkness of cultural decay will not overcome the light of Christ's gospel. We ought to be careful about saying that our day is somehow worse than any other time period in history. That's hardly ever true. There's nothing new under the sun. And yet, we cannot deny the cultural decay that is happening all around us. We cannot deny the increasing rejection of truth, the deepening disdain for authority, and the staggering level of confusion that now grips our world. These are dark days. But that cultural decay will not overcome the light of Christ's gospel. We are citizens of heaven, brothers and sisters. And the last time that I checked, no army, no legislative bill can change the outcome of heaven. Our Lord's kingdom is already established through the resurrection of Jesus and it will one day be fully established in a new heaven and new earth. So, this age is passing away. Everything in this world is passing away. But our confidence remains secure. Amen? Christ is our king and our citizenship is in heaven. The darkness of cultural decay will not overcome the light of Christ's gospel. So whether it's sin or indwelling sin or evil or, or cultural chaos, I'm lingering on this today in order to, Lord willing, by His Spirit, instill in us Christian hope. Hope. I'm, I'm camping out on verse 5 because I'm convinced that Christians of all people ought to be steady and sober-minded and hopeful and confident in the truth. So let me just say it as plainly as I can. The witness of a church is not served by hand-wringing and predictions of doom that does not adorn the gospel. Rather, the life-giving light of Christ is best adorned by churches that are hopeful in Jesus. Amen. By Christians who stand at the end of the driveway and when their neighbors bemoan how awful the world is, Christians who say, yeah, that's probably true, but I have good news to tell you. That's why I'm lingering on verse 5, because of the many things that I pray for myself, and I, friends, I'm not naturally a hopeful person. You can ask my wife. I'm typically a glass-half-empty guy. 
And the water in that glass doesn't look good either. I'm not by nature hopeful, so I'm, I'm preaching this to myself and to you because I want us, of all the things that I want us to be, I want us to be hopeful, hopeful, joyful Christians because we're certain that Christ will triumph because we believe that verse 5 is unthinkably true. I want to shift now to the to the second truth of this of this passage in verses 6 to 8. These verses address the role of John the Baptist. And at first, you may think that they have nothing to do with what we were just talking about. But there is a connection here that we ought to note, and it has to do with the testimony of God's faithfulness. That's the second truth we need to think about, the testimony of God's faithfulness. Verse 6 introduces us to John the Baptist. The Apostle John never refers to himself by name in his book. So whenever you see the name John, you know that the Baptist is in view. Look again at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. We're going to think a lot more about John the Baptist in a couple of weeks. But for now, there's just two simple observations that we need to note. The first is John's role. He is a God-sent witness to the Messiah. You see that there in verse 6, where we are told that John was sent from God. That's prophetic language. One who is tasked by God with a message and a mission. And John's mission is to witness to Christ. Look at verse 8. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So note the distinction between John the Baptist and and Jesus. This is a distinction that all four of the Gospels um, emphasize quite clearly. The distinction between Jesus and John the Baptist. Jesus alone is the light. John is only a witness. Jesus is the light. John is the witness. Now, John the Baptist is the first witness to Jesus in the Gospel. There are a lot of other witnesses that are going to come. But John is the forerunner. And yet, John the Baptist is only a witness. The text is quite clear. No matter how significant John is, and he's very significant, John's role is to point others to the true light that has come into the world. Friends, just briefly, that's, that's the job of every Christian in a nutshell. Even the job of the church. Why do we exist to point others to the Lord Jesus? Why is our church here to make much of Christ? That's it. That's the only reason. No matter how important we think our role is, no matter how elevated we think our position is, no matter how vital our ministry appears to us, at the end of the day, we are not the light. The world does not need us. The world needs Jesus. We're only witnesses to the light. So John's going to teach us this in a couple of weeks. But every Christian needs to always be thinking, Christ must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist's role is to witness to the Messiah. The second observation we should make is the right response to John's witnessing. What is the correct response to John? Look at verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. 
John the Baptist came proclaiming the truth and calling people to repentance in faith in Christ. Friends, that's the only right response to God's word. To receive God's established testimony, to believe in the Son of God, and to entrust oneself to him. This is John the Baptist's message to to you and me, to us. I mean, I want to be clear at this point. John is unique. He's a unique figure in biblical history. There's no one quite like John the Baptist. He's transitional. He's the last of the old covenant uh, prophets. He's the first of the new covenant witnesses. John's unique, in other words. And not everything about John's ministry carries over to 2021. But the purpose of John's ministry does. His call of faith still rings true. God has kept his promises. God has sent his son into the darkness of this world and the darkness has not overcome him. The promised salvation has arrived in Jesus Christ. And therefore, the right response, the only response, is to believe in Christ. To trust in him for salvation. That's the right response, both to John and to God's word. And, and understand, friends, this, this call to faith in Christ is not a blind leap into something you don't understand. Biblical faith is not wishful thinking in some fairy tale that you hope comes true in the end. That's not biblical faith at all. As John the Baptist reminds us in verse 6, God's faithfulness is the foundation for our faith in the Lord Jesus. God sent John ahead of Jesus because in doing so, God was fulfilling his word and keeping his promises. What should you think about when you see John the Baptist in verse 6? You should think, God is faithful. God keeps his word. This is a God I can trust. Because he honors what he says. John is a testimony of God's faithfulness and God's faithfulness, friends, is the foundation for our faith to believe in Christ is not a blind leap into the nothingness. It's to see God's actions in history, and it's to believe that God has kept His word, that His word deserves our trust, and that His word is fulfilled ultimately in Christ Jesus. That's where I want to end this morning, with a call to faith in Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that the light of Christ has entered the darkness, and the darkness has not won. Christianity is not a battle of good versus evil. It's the good news of Christ always triumphing over evil through his own death and resurrection. That good news is grounded upon the faithfulness of God, revealed in history and recorded in Scripture. Friend, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today, God could not make himself plainer to you. He has revealed his faithfulness in history and he has recorded his faithfulness in his word, which is true. The only response is to bow the knee in submission and faith to Christ. We pray that you'll do so today. May we be hopeful and confident, friends, in the certain victory of Jesus Christ. And may the faithfulness of God, revealed in so many ways, encourage us to hold fast to the gospel. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we ask that you would please take these words now that we have meditated upon from Scripture and that you would please seal them upon our hearts by your Holy Spirit. That we would believe the things that are true. That we would obey where you are calling us to obey. And that we would rejoice, God, in your faithfulness. Revealed in history, recorded in your word. And that we would rest our faith upon you, who you are, what you have done, and not upon what we think or what we feel or how much we can understand. Help us, Father, to look only to you. We thank you for the victory of Christ in the gospel. And we pray, Father, that we would be a hopeful people, confident of what you have done in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.